God is triune. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, hey, Gordon, I remember you preaching on this subject like not too long back ago. You know what? You'd be right. Back in March or April, I believe it was, we talked about the subject of the Trinity. And so today I'm going to do just some uh, overview summary explanations of the Trinity, and then we'll jump into some more uh, unique teaching about the Trinity that we didn't cover the last time we gathered on this subject matter. Our, our text today is going to come from Matthew chapter 26. We'll be reading verses 36 through 39. And so I'm going to ask if you would to please stand for the reading of God's Word, Matthew chapter 26. You can read along on the screen or follow along in your Bible, whichever. Matthew chapter 26, begin reading at verse 36. Here we go. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. You may be seated. Thank you so much. These are words that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we'll get to these words in this particular occasion here in just a few moments. But first, I want to give you some of those summary explanations of the doctrine of the Trinity. We have three parts of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Here's a picture that kind of depicts what's going on there as their relationship is to one another. Now, these uh, three persons are distinct persons who exist simultaneously, that is, at the same time. So God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, all existing right now at the same time in these three persons. They are also co-eternal, that is, none of them was created. None of them had a beginning. God is, as we saw last week in our picture of the physical universe that God sets outside of our physical universe. He can enter into our physical universe, but is not limited to time and space, not limited to the material world like you and I are. And so God um, is, what, is what is infinite. Uh, they are also co-equal. That is that none is greater or lesser than the others. The Athanasian Creed says it best, and I quote, this is going back to some of the early church fathers who are wrestling with this doctrine of the Trinity and wanted to put down in words what exactly the scripture teaches. Here's what they wrote. We worship one God in Trinity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. In this Trinity, nothing is greater or less, but all three persons are co-eternal together and co-equal, end of quote. Now, Jesus commented to this fact when he spoke the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, and verse 19. He said these words. He said, therefore, go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is recognizing here that there is a co-equality within the Godhead, that not one is lesser than or greater than the others. They are all fully God, yet three distinct persons. And now any other definition of the Trinity, friends, is to be rejected. Any other definition of the Trinity, any other understanding of the Godhead and, its, and the relationship of the Godhead to one another is to be declared as heresy. We reject that as uh, proper teaching and understanding in the church. But you say, Gordon, with three distinct persons composing the Godhead, how can Christians claim to be monotheists? I mean, if there's three distinct persons, doesn't that make us tritheists? Doesn't that make us polytheists, where we believe in the presence of many gods? How do we reconcile that God is three and yet call that one? That's a really great question. I got one more slide for you here. Again, this is just some summary explanations here. One more slide, and it shows H2O. Y'all know what H2O is, right? Got two hydrogen atoms, and you got one oxygen atom, and that forms three different uh, uh, 
What's the word I'm looking for here? Phases? States, thank you, states, right? Not phases, no. States, three different states. And so one of those states is a solid, one's a liquid, and one's a gaseous form. And so H2O in the gaseous form is steam, in the solid form is ice, and in the liquid form is what we would call water. Uh, well, compare that to the Godhead, right? H2O exists simultaneously in these three different forms, but it's all of the same substance. We call it H2O. So same thing with the Godhead. You have God the Father, the Son, the Spirit, all existing simultaneously of the same substance uh, and yet distinct in its three different states or his three different persons. Now, if you want more information on the Trinity, you want some more teaching on it, go to the website for the church, look up the sermon that was preached on that back in March, April, went a little bit deeper into all these subject matter, and you can check that out. But for today, I want to take a look at one of the uniquenesses of the relationship within the Godhead and then talk about what difference all that makes to your life and mine. So let's go to this particular story that we just read in Matthew chapter 26. We find Jesus there in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying for strength. He's praying for courage. He's praying that God would, the Father would walk with him through this time of trial. And so here's the prayer. Here's how that story unfolds. Matthew 26, beginning at verse 36. It says, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. Now, the Garden of Gethsemane, i got some pictures for you here. There's a church. First of all, we'll probably start, maybe we'll start with the church. We'll see what pops up here. There's a church called the Basilica of Agony. It's a Catholic, Roman Catholic church built on the spot that is believed to be the place where Jesus knelt down in the Garden of Gethsemane in the Mount of Olives. He's standing on the Mount of Olives. There's the Kidron Valley that goes down and then up the other side to the temple itself, Jerusalem. And so Jesus is out here on the outskirts of the city on the Mount of Olives at this spot where this Basilica of Agony uh, has been built uh, now. And it houses a, a particular spot. The church is built on top of a spot that is believed to be the rock that Jesus knelt down on to pray in the garden when he prayed this prayer that we just read. Um, there's also some pictures there of, of an olive tree. I don't know if you saw the one with a little bit of olive grove right alongside the church. And if you look in the distance, one of those olive trees is, has a massive trunk. And like that didn't happen overnight, right? That took literally thousands of years. And there are folks that believe that this tree, this olive tree, dates back at least 2,000 years to the time of Christ perhaps was growing there in that area where Jesus was. And there's three other trees that are believed about the same age as well. And so uh, let's take a look at verse 37. So he took Peter, two sons of Zebedee, uh, and two sons of Zebedee along with him. And Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled, verse 38. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Now notice that what Jesus says here, you notice it in verse 37. And again in verse 38, Jesus is not fearful. He's not afraid. The scripture says that he is sorrowful. And it was this sorrow that brought him to this place of feeling like he was getting ready to die. So what's Jesus so sorrowful about? You say, I can understand him being scared. You know, he's seen men die on crosses before. He knows the pain and the agony of the cross. But what is it that's got Jesus so sad? Well, when Jesus goes onto the cross, the sins of the world are going to be heaped on his shoulders. And because the sins of the world are going to be heaped on his shoulders, he's going to become unclean. He's going to be something, become something that the rest of the Godhead, which is holy, cannot have anything to do with, cannot associate themselves with. And so when Jesus goes up on the cross, what we see there is that he becomes unclean when the sins of the world are heaped on his shoulders, and the Godhead must turn his face from Jesus on the cross. So what Jesus is anticipating is this great separation that's going to take place between himself 
and the Father, between himself and the Holy Spirit. And it's a, ne- it's a necessary separation. And so Jesus is sorrowful. He is saddened about that abandonment that's about ready to happen to him. Now, it's what Jesus says next that I want for us to spend our time considering. Verse 39. It says, uh, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then two more times, Jesus walks off into the night. He comes back, texts on the disciples. They're sleeping. He walks back off in the night, and he prays his prayer two more times. Father, may this cup pass from me, if it's possible. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Friends, the last thing that Jesus would ever want to happen is for himself to be separated from the Godhead. The last thing that he would ever want to see take place is for him to be abandoned by the Godhead. And yet that's exactly what happens in Scripture. When you read in Scripture, it says at the sixth hour, which is noon, Jesus dies on the cross at three o'clock in the afternoon. From noon until three o'clock in the afternoon, when the sins of the world have been heaped on Jesus' shoulders, the Scripture records that darkness covered over the face of the earth. And that word earth is the word gain, and it refers to the area of the Fertile Crescent. So literally darkness covered over, just like the eclipse from the other day, but it lasted for three hours and darkness covered over the face of that part, that region of the world. And it was God the Father, perhaps symbolically, perhaps literally, turning his eyes, turning his head away from what was taking place on the cross. And it was a necessary thing for that separation, for that abandonment to take place. There could be no greater agony for God the Son. And so Jesus, anticipating that, is wondering if there's some other way. But friends, no other way could be found. And so three times Jesus prays this prayer, and three times he concludes the prayer with these words, yet not my will, but yours be done. Um, Jesus is saying there could be no more difficult requirement assigned to me. There could be no more Herculean task afforded to me. Now, you all know how the story ends after praying three times this prayer on the three separate occasions in the garden. By the third time, Jesus is emboldened. By the third time he prays this prayer, he is ready to go and ascend the cross and the the drama of the crucifixion to unfold. Um, Verse uh, 45 says, Then he remembered after praying to the disciples and said to them, Are you sleeping and resting? Look, for the hour is near. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Verse 46, Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. So we see Jesus there emboldened. We see him ready to go and take on the cross, ready to take on. And it's from this moment forward that we see Jesus not flinch, not one time at the thought, at a step forward to going toward the cross. Now, the million-dollar question is, how did Jesus get emboldened? How did Jesus turn things around in his mind, in his emotions? How did he get ready, go from being totally down in the dumps to being totally ready to go and take this on? And the answer is, friends, for the sake of being cliche, he went to prayer. He went to prayer. That's how Jesus overcame his sorrow and his apprehension. He simply prayed. It was a deep prayer. It was an agonizing prayer. But that prayer slowly but surely brought Jesus back into perfect harmony with the will of the Father for his life, which was to go to the cross. That is to say, friends, that in Gethsemane, kneeling over that rock is where the Lord Jesus found victory. You know, the victory for you and me was his resurrection from the grave. But the victory for Jesus was there in the garden. 
that's where he found victory to go and do and accomplish the work that the Father had set for him to do. And the spiritual mechanism that Jesus used to achieve this victory, friends, was none other than prayer. Okay, that wraps up our topic for today, our treatment of this subject matter. And uh, so that means it's time for us to turn our attention to the most important question, which is, what difference does all this make to your life and mine? Say, Gordon, that's really great. I appreciate what Jesus went through and what he was willing to endure on my behalf, not just the physical suffering, but the separation as well. And I see how dramatic and how difficult that was. I appreciate that. But I mean, how does that impact my world and where I'm living and raising my kids and all the other stuff going on in my life? What difference does any of this make to me? Let's talk about that. You know, every Christian life has its Gethsemane, where it is our will versus God's will. And so here's our question. The question is, how do we then wrestle our human will into the submission of God's will? In other words, how do we take our human will and cry uncle, right? And submit it to, turn it to doing whatever it is that God is asking of us to do. Well, the answer is we do it the same way the Lord Jesus did 2,000 years ago. And that is through prayer. Through coming to the Lord on our knees, coming before him in prayer, and in that quiet place, in that Gethsemane of ours, kneeling down before him, we yield ourselves to his spirit, to his will. Prayer for God to realign our stubborn will with his will for our life. And it goes something like this, coming to him and saying, God, here I am with a great dilemma in my hands. I've got your will over here wanting me to go this way, and I've got my will over here wanting to go the opposite way. Lord, I need to get my will aligned with your will. So Lord, please do a work in my heart so that I can move forward the way you want me to in a way that honors you so that I can take the steps that you're asking for me to take because God, I don't possess within me the strength. I don't possess within me the courage. I don't possess within me the ability to do the thing that you're asking me to do. I want to get there, but God, I can't get there in and of my own strength. And so that's why Jesus used prayer as a spiritual mechanism to transform and shape his heart and allow him to be able to do what it was that the Father was asking for him to do. Um, many of you are familiar with, and you know that I read a lot on uh, presidential uh, past presidents, and one of my favorite presidents is Abraham Lincoln. And uh, Abraham Lincoln... Um, has a statue in the National Cathedral where he is poised on his knees praying to the Lord. And uh, I was interested to find out this week, I never knew this, but that Abraham Lincoln was uh, not an evangelical, you might say, believer, an Orthodox believer, Orthodox Christian believer, until his presidency. Uh, he was a moral man who believed in the Scriptures and believed in God Almighty and believed in Him as our Creator uh, but he hadn't submitted and given his life over to Jesus in a way we might think of as in Orthodox Christianity um, until his presidency. Um, during his presidency, however, once he gave his life to Christ, he goes on to declare more days of national prayer and fasting and thanksgiving than any other president in, uh, in, in our nation's history. Uh, it was President Lincoln in 1863 who declared thanksgiving as a national day of thanking God for his blessings upon our nation. And that's where Thanksgiving uh, came from as a national holiday. Um, as a young man, Lincoln openly questioned the truth of Scripture. Um, and he even, again, when he became president, 
1861 and 1862, um, he said that his God was not the God of the universe, but rather his God was the Union. And he looked to the Union as the salvation of this country. Uh, but as things began to progress and his presidency went forward and the Civil War was unfolding, Lincoln's life took a dramatic turn. Uh, he lost his son. Uh, his son passed away uh, during his presidency. And this devastated him. His wife became ill and turned toward other means for finding solace. Um, but Lincoln sought the scriptures for wisdom. He sought the scriptures for solace in the midst of all that he was going through. And confronted with the loss of his son Willie, yet and another devastating uh, defeat from the Union Army, a humbled Lincoln finally embraced Christ in 1862. And he writes, my own wisdom became sufficient. And he wrote this to a friend. My own wisdom became insufficient. I was driven many times upon my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I have nowhere else to go. Let me read that for you one more time. He said, I, <clears throat> he said my own wisdom is, it seemed insufficient. I was driven many times upon my knees by an overwhelming conviction that I have nowhere else to go. And Lincoln, as a result of that, became a regular church attendee. And many times throughout the war, when hospitals were needing to be uh, just, you know, pop-up hospitals were needing to be designated, Lincoln would not allow churches to become those places because he wanted them to be reserved for houses of worship. He didn't want to inhibit the people of this country from coming before the Lord, kneeling before the Lord. He believed that them coming and praying and gathering together worship was so much more vital and important toward the uh, to sustaining the Union. When General Lee led his army of 76,000 men into Pennsylvania and everyone in Washington, D.C. was in total panic, um, Lincoln wrote these words. He told a friend, when everyone seems panic-stricken, I got down on my knees before Almighty God and prayed, and soon a sweet spirit crept over my soul. Where did Lincoln find the strength? Where did Lincoln find the courage? He found it in the Lord God Almighty, but he found it in connecting with the Lord on his knees in prayer. He crept up alongside that rock, that garden of Gethsemane in his own life, and went before the Lord and took it before the Lord, and God changed and transformed his heart. Lincoln found in prayer peace. He found in prayer resolve. He found in prayer clarity of direction for himself, his presidency, and the nation. Prayer became the spiritual mechanism like it had for Christ that would propel him to become one of the greatest men that this world, not just our nation, but this world has ever known. For Lincoln, the victory was won on his knees in prayer in his Gethsemane, not out on the battlefield of America. Maybe what is troubling you is slandering somebody at work or even being judgmental of someone maybe manipulating people for personal gain. Maybe you've done something wrong and you're refusing to humble yourself and go back and ask for forgiveness. Or maybe God has been asking you to go somewhere or to do something or to speak to someone or some other way. Friends, take that stuff to the Garden of Gethsemane and the Lord will meet you there. And friends, what you need to happen may not happen in that first hour. It may not happen in the first week it may not happen for months but friends you persistently go to the garden of gethsemane and ask the lord jesus to do in your heart what you cannot do yourself 
And friends, God will enable that supernaturally to take place. I commented to declare this past week. I said, you know what? I'm going to precede that comment with another comment. I've been doing some painting this past week, okay? Just trying to touch up and finish out a few things, a couple projects that I got going. And in painting, I have worn <coughs> the hair off of my knees. And I said to Claire, I said, hey, look at that. The, the hair is all worn off of my knees. And she kind of looked at me like, hmm. I said, it's because I've been painting. <laughs> but it, it, it convicted me in my heart, right, that, hey, look, Gordon, there's a place that you need to be every day. You need to get into your Garden of Gethsemane before the Lord. And he's been pressing on me all week to do that. And I've been pursuing him to do that, to say, Lord, I want to spend more time with you, more time being shaped in your presence, more time being washed over by your presence. God, I need your strength. I need your courage. God, I need your clarity of direction. And God, and friends, God did that for Lincoln. The Lord God Father did that for the Lord Jesus Christ, and he'll do that for you. So let's conclude. Visiting the Garden of Gethsemane for Jesus marked a moment for him to spiritually realign himself with the will of the Father. And folks, going to that garden in our own life needs to be a daily experience, if not a weekly experience. And sometimes that realignment takes only a few moments. Sometimes it takes weeks. Sometimes it takes months. But friends, if we persist in prayer, the Lord will transform our hearts and our situations. As a result of this prayer of realignment, the Lord Jesus came out of the garden in a very different place than he went in. And he discovered, just like you and I discover, that the highest purpose of prayer, get this, the highest purpose of prayer is not to change stuff. It's to change you. That's the highest purpose of prayer. Oftentimes we go to God to pray to say, God, change my stuff. And friends, yes, we do need God to change our stuff. The highest purpose of prayer is for God to change you and I. So here's my question as we close. In what area of your life do you need God to do a supernatural work to change you in a way that you've been trying, but you, you just can't get there? God, in my own strength, and my own wisdom, and my own resolve, it's not happening. God, you've got to do this work. And friends, you continue to persist in prayer. And just like God did for Lincoln, and just like God did for the Lord Jesus, he will do the same for you. Let's bow our heads again. God, we thank you for a message of hope this morning. How we see that our circumstances are not limited by our own ability to change them. Lord, we pray. We come before you now as we gather around this table. Remember your broken body. Remember your shed blood. We are reminded that, Lord, we cannot conquer our own fears, conquer our own weakness, conquer our own lack of courage, or whatever it may be, our own tongue, whatever it may be. We cannot do that in and of our own strength. We need you, and God, you have given us the place to go to, to be transformed, to be renewed, to be strengthened. Lord, we uh, just invite you into this quiet space of communion this morning press into our hearts to begin shaping and molding us into a new creation. God, do in us what we cannot do for ourselves. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.